I want to encourage you to turn with me. I'm in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21 um, in particular. As you guys know, for the first half of this fall semester and season, and we were working our way through some of the foundational ideas in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and that has now given way to some foundational ideas from the final two chapters of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And it's kind of fitting to make your move to Revelation during the season of Advent, because the season of Advent traditionally is a time to mark the coming of Christ. And even more specifically, the season of Advent is to mark the coming of Christ in his return, his second coming. And so that is at least part of the reason why we're exploring these things in this time of year um, in particular. And as has been our custom, I'm going to pair our sermon text reading, which is quite lengthy, which you can find in your worship guide, um, with a couple of other texts throughout the pages of the scripture. Part of the idea here was for you to get a sense of how some of these ideas travel from one end of the scriptures to the other. So I'm going to read for you from a couple places might be too much for you to try to turn there as I go. So just listen carefully to these words that are in God's word to us and for us tonight from Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand our pleasures forevermore. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. And from the book of Hebrews, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And from the book of Revelation tonight. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates And at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those are written who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, in this moment, these few moments we have together, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, it's the thing that we must have you do tonight. Lord, that is to shine light by the power of your spirit on these mysterious words in your word. Lord, shine light on the words that I prepared. And would you use these words to great effect in our hearts and in our souls? Well, I pray that they would stir up a fresh and living hope in Jesus, that they would fill us with a fresh, deep, abiding sense of joy. Where we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I enjoy traveling. In particular, I enjoy traveling to some of the world's great cities. So I like the feeling, personally, when you're standing in one of the great cities of the world and things are buzzing with excitement and energy, and you get that sense that I am now sitting in, like, or standing in the center of the world, because it buzzes with life and excitement. And one of my favorite cities in particular is the city of London. One of my favorite places in London is an area called Charing Cross, 
which just for the record in the 1800s was sort of redeveloped to become Trafalgar Square, if you're interested in those kind of things. But that might be another talk for another day. And when you're standing in Charing Cross or Trafalgar Square, what's really interesting is if you look down this direction, you see a famous street in London called the Strand. It comes right to you. If you look down this direction, you see one of the most famous streets in London, Northumberland, and it comes down this direction. If you look in that direction, you see one of the most famous, important streets in all of London called the Mall, and it comes down this direction. If you look in that direction, one of the most famous, important streets in London comes to meet you in that place. It's called Charing Cross Road. If you were to look behind you in this direction, there's a street called Parliament Square, and it comes to meet you right there in that place. And if you look in that direction, St. Martin's Place. In other words, the, the most important roads in the city of London all come and converge right there in that place. And I tell you that because tonight in our text tonight, we get a vision of a new Jerusalem, the great city, the city to which all other cities are but a shadow. And in particular, and this is the thing I find to be really interesting, is that if you're reading this scene, if you heard me read it, and as I explain it, what you're going to see, if you will, will be all the great roads of biblical truth coming and converging here in this text. So for example, from the New Jerusalem, if you look out in that direction, you see the promises of, say, the book of Genesis or the book of Exodus traveling from the beginning pages of the scriptures to this moment. If you were to look in that direction, you'll see the promises of the great prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel coming down this direction to meet you here. If you were to look in that direction, you'll see the promises and the words of the psalmists coming to bear in this place and in this moment. If you look in that direction, you'll see even some New Testament texts like the Paul's letter to the Ephesians or perhaps the letter to the Hebrews, all these roads of biblical promises and ideas and truths and elements and interesting things come to a head here. Is anybody overwhelmed yet? <laughs> I am. I'm not going to attempt to explain everything, but what I am going to attempt to do with all the pastoral passion that I can muster is from this text, I want to get across to you one central main idea. And here's the idea. If you don't hear anything else I say, this is it. This text teaches us that the Lord's presence is our actual reward. The Lord's presence is our actual reward. The Lord's presence is our actual reward. And in that, I think for us tonight, there is both a challenge to think about our lives differently, okay? And there's a commission. There's something you and I are supposed to engage and participate in and live. 
So let's take a look at this together. I want to do this really in two parts. First of all, I want to explain to you this vision John receives of the new Jerusalem. It's a loaded vision. It's highly symbolic. For the record, it is hard to explain. I won't give it a go. In particular, I want you to see the beauty that you're supposed to notice. I want you to see the security and the safety you're supposed to understand. And I want you to see, lack of a better term, just the bigness, the vastness, the achievement that this city is. And then after I explain that part to you, I want to shepherd your soul a bit. I want to do my best to speak to your heart. I want to challenge you, like I said, to think of your life differently. I want to challenge you to take up this call, this commission to go and live. So let's take a look. Let's talk about this new Jerusalem. By the way, if you're not a city person, first of all, you're going to have to get used to it. Secondly, it might be because the cities of this world are broken and marred by sin. But this city's different. First of all, let's take a look at the beauty that we're supposed to see in this city. Look with me in verse 11. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. If you look in verse 12, it has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. It's a beautiful city. It's bedecked with jewels in verses 18 to 21. Every jewel that was known in the ancient world in verses 8 to 21 were rattled off for you. Did you hear them? There's jasper, there's gold, there's sapphire, there's agate, there's emerald, there's onyx, there's carnelian, there's chrysolite, there's beryl, there's topaz, there's chrysoprase, there's jacinth, there's amethyst, there's pearls, there's even more gold. Now, this vision has sort of borrowed down the road, if you will, language from the prophets in particular. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of this beautiful city that God would create that would be just dazzling with jewels. It would have inscriptions. In other words, artwork adorns the city in all directions. The thing you're supposed to gain from this is that this new city, this new Jerusalem that is to come is the most unspeakably, unspeakably beautiful thing that your eyes have ever beheld, okay, that your senses have ever taken in. Now, if this was just kind of a random Bible study where I could speak for another 30, 40 minutes extra, which is not I'd want to talk to you about sort of a theology of beauty in the Bible. And I'd want to tell you, and I'll just tell it to you in short form, that beauty as is understood biblically, beauty is when we behold something with our senses and it gives us an intense pleasure. And part of the intense pleasure of the thing is realizing how fitting it is. That's how the Bible understands the concept of beauty. So the idea that there are these jewels and it's overwhelmingly beautiful to the eyes, part of the beauty that's supposed to blow you over is the fact that it fits. 
It's like if Jesus has really returned to make all things new and right, then it only makes sense that it'd be the most amazing thing you've ever seen. That's the idea. The idea in general, again, traveling down the road of the prophets, traveling down the road of the psalmists, is to gaze upon this beauty is the most unbelievable sensation that you've ever experienced. Is intended, as is described, to be an overload of the senses. So let me just put it to you this way. If you are into this kind of thing, beauty, whether that be in art or theater or music or architecture or food, or relationships, or touch. If you're into that kind of thing, which as a human person, you most certainly are, then this place will be a kind of paradise for you. Which sounds amazing, doesn't it? But it's not the main thing. So what's the main thing? Let's keep reading. The second thing that we're supposed to see, if the first thing about the city we're supposed to see was its intense, spectacular beauty, the second thing we're supposed to gather about the city is its complete and utter and total security and safety. Okay? So look at verse 12. It had a great high wall. Verses 12 to 14, did you hear about all the gates? It had a great high wall, 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, there are 12 angels, and on the gates, there are 12 tribes that represent the names of the 12 tribes are inscribed, and there's east gates, and there's north gates, and there's south gates, and there's west gates. And these gates sit upon a sturdy and sure foundation. The idea here is there's total and utter security in this place. It's got a high wall, symbolic of safety. Okay, it's got gates that are guarded by angels, symbolic of security. But what's interesting is that we're told later in the vision that the gates in verse 25 are never shut. And that's because there's nothing left anymore to threaten God's people. Sure, it has gates. Sure, it has angels guarding. Sure, it has a high wall, but all those things are there for actual beauty purposes because God's people will have been made totally and utterly secure. Now, we learn that the nations and the kings of the earth can come into it. In other words, it's a refuge city for anyone who would want to come. Now, again, this is channeling the promises of places like Isaiah and Jeremiah, things we've read over the last few weeks that God's people will one day dwell securely. The promise made to you and to me tonight through this text is that one day you will have utter and complete and total safety and security. Let me put it to you this way. If you've ever been afraid... And you have, because you're a human person. 
You won't have anything to fear anymore. If you've ever felt the intensity of being in danger, not in this city. If you've ever woke up in the middle of the night thinking you heard something, not in this city. If you've ever been worried about your kids, if you've ever been like a public park and you're like watching them the whole time and then some kind person's trying to have a conversation with you and you're kind of looking past them because you're like watching your kids the whole time, not in this city. The idea here is of security and certain safety. If you're the type of person who struggles with fear, this place will be a paradise for you. And the security and the safety and the certainty sounds nice, but it's not the main thing. So what's the main thing? Let's keep reading. If we saw the beauty of this city and we saw the safety and security of this city, the final thing I want to show you about this vision is just the bigness and the vastness, the colossal global scale achievement of this place. Okay, look with me at verse 16. The city lies four square. It's the length. Its length is the same as its width. So it's a perfect square. And the angel measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Okay, this is the equivalent of 1,400 miles. So I looked up what's 1,400 miles from where we stand right now, Phoenix, Arizona. A city that stretches that far, which by the way, it's stretching that far, that direction, that direction, that direction, that direction. For the ancient reader, that would have been the entire known world. The idea is it's a universal city, urban sprawl, but in a good way. (laughs) I thought of that in the moment. One of the things I think is amazing about this text in verse 17, he also measured his wall 144 cubits. That's 200 feet high by human measurement. And then they want you to know, oh, by the way, that's also an angel's measurement. Humans and angels measured the same if you ever wanted to know. (laughs) The idea is of something so grand and so big and so giant. But the bigger idea is the idea of completion. Remember, the original call to human beings was to take their gifts and their skills that had been given as image bearers and to take the world that God had made and to move it and to shape it and to make it into something beautiful and grand that would give glory to God. And the idea here is that all of human ingenuity and skill and expertise that is honoring to God will have been completely having been brought to finish this beautiful and glorious place. Verse 24 and verse 26, importantly, by its light will the nations walk and the kings on the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. It's a global city. It's a multicultural city with worshipers who are present there from every tongue and tribe and nation. 
So let me put it to you like this. If you've ever loved the idea of kind of excellence and order and completion and projects and achievement and fruitfulness and a good, holy, sacred kind of success, if you've ever loved other cultures and languages and foods and from these places, this place will be a paradise for you, which truly sounds incredible to me. But it's not the main thing. So what's the main thing? It's beautiful. It's totally secure. It's an achievement. This is the second part of the sermon where I want to try to speak directly to your heart. And I want to do that by asking you a question. So remember, this is a prophetic vision, and therefore it asks a prophetic question. And a way to think of a prophetic question in the scriptures, the prophets are always asking them. There are these kind of pressing questions that make you a little uncomfortable. So let me ask you one. If you could have the beauty and the riches and the pleasures and the comforts of this vision, if you could have the security and the safety and the no-stress certainty and the peace and the freedom from worry and anxiety of this vision, and if you could have the achievement and the success and the grandiosity of this vision without God involved, would you take it? Now you might say to me, if you're being honest, maybe. I mean, Joel, I spend my whole life trying to pursue comforts and pleasures. I spend my whole life trying to ward off any kind of danger so I can feel secure for, for me or for the people I love. Joel, I mean, you know, I spend my entire life trying to achieve things. So, I mean, like, maybe. I'll be honest. For me, yeah, maybe. In other words, y'all, sometimes we just really want worldly things, don't we? I sometimes just want worldly things. But let me tell you something. The whole goal of the Bible And the entire goal of pastoral work is to ask you that question. If you could have the beauty and the comfort and the security and the peace and the achievement and the success without God, the whole goal of the Bible, the whole goal of pastoral work is for you to be asked that question and for you to answer back, no way. No way. And the reason that that is the goal of the Bible It's because none of those things, beauty, riches, pleasures, security, safety, fruitfulness, achievement, none of those things actually, actually really exist apart from him. They just don't. 
not in their real, truest, white, hot, burning form. They just don't exist. Every semblance of that you get in other places that you get from the world is but a shadow of a much more real thing. And every single one of those things, beauty, pleasure, safety, security, achievement, success, worth, and value, every single one of those things are to be found completely and utterly in God. Totally. There's a place in the scriptures in a conversation with a friend this week who works on our team reminded me of this. And it's something that I remembered from a time when I was a college student and a pastor who meant a lot in my life reminded me of it. There's a place in the book of Deuteronomy, honestly, as well as in the book of Joshua. Well, a certain tribe of Israelites were given an inheritance. But listen how it plays out. They conquered the land, and Moses begins divvying out inheritance. To the tribe of Judah, you get this. To the tribe of Manasseh, you get this. To the tribe of Dan, you get this. To the tribe of Benjamin, you get this. And then it gets to the tribe of Levi. And it says, and to the tribe of Levi, they didn't get an inheritance. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, was their inheritance. And in that moment, if you feel like the Levites got the wrong end of the deal, then you don't understand anything the Bible's trying to teach us. Having God alone is not worse than having God plus other things. Because God is all in all. In other words, let's look deeper at this vision. Beauty and pleasure, look with me at verse 11. It had the glory of God. In other words, the spectacular beauty of this place was not in the jewels. It was in the bright glory of God. That's what made it what it was. That's what makes it beautiful. Look at verse 22 in the temple. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty in the Lamb. There's no temple in this city because the presence of God, the very presence of God, the very presence of God, God Almighty pervades every inch of it. See, in the old days, the temple was the particular place where God's glory dwelt. But in this new place, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth just like the waters cover the sea, total. Verse 23, it has no sun or moon. There's no more night there. Why? Because we're told in verse 23 that God's presence lights the place up. His presence is the source of beauty and joy and pleasure here. It's his presence that brings the safety and security. The place is safe and secured not because of a wall, but because God is there and he has eliminated and brought judgment upon all the threats that threaten his people. It's an achievement. It's success. Because the builder of this city, its architect, we're told in the book of Hebrews, is God. In other words, my friends, every single thing you're looking for, everything, is found in God. 
This is what the psalmist means when the psalmist cries out, you are my inheritance and my cup and my portion. Now, if when I asked that hard question, if you'd have answered immediately, no way, there's no way, not a chance, then there's a really good chance that you've suffered some pain and disappointment in this world. And the promise of this vision is that hope you've put in God will not be put to shame. You won't be disappointed. Now, the final thing I want to tell you is that this picture of this future new city out there, remember, offers us a kind of hope and a kind of joy that we're supposed to sort of pull into our present tense moment. Remember that whole thing I keep doing in these weeks? It's like this. Because the promise here and in all of these pages is that the hope of that future city, you and I get to enjoy in the present tense. Not in its fullness, in measure, in part, but let me just give you a couple of examples. Scriptures teach that we are united to Jesus in our baptism, that we're brought into his family, into his literal body, that we're nourished by Jesus in Holy Communion, that we take him in and we eat and are nourished. When we gather with each other, like we've done tonight, that we gather with each other, but literally in this moment, under God's word, we are part of this great communion of the saints. We are gathered right now in a very real way in the assembly that's gathered around God's throne. The scriptures teach that you and I are now the temple. In other words, just like God's presence pervades this place, our presence is supposed to pervade our place, not just here, but out the doors into our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, to the ends of the earth. And what's really interesting is that in this, this is the final thing I'll say, there's a great commission for you and I as God's people. What's fascinating about this vision is everything that you hear when it describes this new Jerusalem correspond to things that churches are called to be doing. I'll give you some examples. In this city, it's an entire sanctuary of worship. And when you and I gather in here, but then we scatter out there to live lives of worship, we're part of building a city, the scriptures teach us. Okay, our world is dark and you are called to be lights in the darkness, to go and to light up the world in much the same way that God's glory lights up the city. This city is known for being pure. Nothing detestable can come in. There's not a serpent who's gonna slink around anymore. And when you and I live lives of holiness, distinction, difference, we offer that holiness as a gift to our world. There are certain things you can only get in God's church that you can't, that aren't available in other places. When we serve as a church community, as a refuge for people who are hurting, who have been battered by the power of evil all week long. When they come in here to hear of God's abundant mercy and love and grace, 
We're building a city. When you bring your gifts and your skills to build up this body or whichever one you belong to, you're building a city. Remember, this city has the nations that are brought into it. When you and I go into all the world, either literally some of us, Courtney and Jake Thomas, are getting ready to do this. We're going to talk about this next week. But as we are part of God's mission, we are building something. A dear friend of mine who's a member of this church talks about how he feels like his life's calling is on that day when worshipers are gathered from every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping God, he thinks it's his life calling to make that chorus just one voice louder. In other words, the message of Advent is not just the world is dark and painful, but the world is dark and painful. And we cry, come Lord Jesus, but it's not just that. It's that this hope of the future gives us this invitation. Gives us an invitation to be a part of spreading the presence of God, the hope of Jesus into our world. Yes, the message of Advent is that the world is dark, but the message of Advent is that a people walking in darkness have seen a light. There's a calling here in the words of a scholar I admire to go and build. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be our portion and our cup, that your presence would be our reward, that the hope of what's to come would travel its way backwards into our present tense moment to fill us with joy and hope Lord, to send us out with good news to proclaim. Lord, as we endure darkness, I pray that we would do so. Lord, trusting and clinging to you, Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world. Would you help us in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.